Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the features editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Ever since the Spanish invasion of the 16th century, Mexico has been preyed upon by the world's most powerful states. But the country and its people have also played their part in shaping world history. The Mexican Revolution created a system whose leaders tried to reshape the world economy in line with their own vision. The failure of those efforts turned Mexico into a laboratory for the neoliberal economic model that has since spread all over the world. Our guest today is Christy Thornton. Christy teaches sociology and Latin American studies at Johns Hopkins University, and she's the author of Revolution in Development, Mexico and the Governance of the Global Economy. Mexico might not have the same reputation as a revolutionary power in world politics when compared with Russia or China or even Cuba. Yet it was the location of one of the 20th century's first great revolutions. What was the nature of the system that was created by that revolution? That's a really great question. And it's a complicated answer, particularly depending on the kind of time frame that you use to answer it. So in the immediate aftermath of the the revolution was a kind of multi-sided internecine battle to overthrow the previously existing dictatorship of Porfirio Diaz, who had been in power for decades leading up to the beginning of the revolution in 1910. And so there were factions that were interested largely in questions of sort of liberal democracy and ensuring that, you know, for instance, a dictator could not just be reelected over and over and over again. There were factions that were very much interested in questions of land reform and breaking the power of sort of large landholders, not only large national private landholders, but foreign companies and the Catholic Church. Um, And then there were um, worker struggles, worker struggles coming out of factories and mines, particularly based in cities and in northern mining regions. And so those factions sort of all came together over the course of, you know, a long, nearly decade long struggle. And the resulting regime was one that was drew a lot of its legitimacy from the 1917 Constitution, which was the first real social democratic charter in the world. The the Constitution itself codified important labor rights. It detailed plans for land redistribution. And it did this really important thing with regard to property rights, which was say that property was no longer vested in individuals inalienably, but was actually vested in the nation and that it sort of devolved to the state to make sure that property was distributed equitably and for the good of the nation. So those were the kind of broad strokes of what the Mexican revolution really put into place Over the decades that followed that period, the the Constitution happened in 1917, really from, say, 1920 forward. The struggle was about how to put in place those ideas that have been codified in the Constitution. And particularly with Mexico being in a kind of dependent economic position with regard to the United States and being fragile, you know, sort of politically, economically, socially in the aftermath of 10 years of sustained fighting, it took a long time to really put into place some of the most important reforms that were called for in that constitution. So people might know that by 1938, um, the Mexican government under the president Lázaro Cárdenas eventually came to nationalize the oil sector and create the kind of state-run oil company that we know today as Pemex. 
So the legacy of the revolution was one very much based in the idea of sort of social and economic rights as codified in the constitution, but there maintained a kind of social struggle for decades after that to put those ideas into place. And then of course, you know, the political system that emerged from that would eventually solidify into a kind of institutionalization through a single party known as the Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI. And that party would come to have a kind of political stranglehold over the Mexican state through much of the 20th century in a way that really began to undermine some of the, especially the democratic ideas that were put forward in the revolution. So it's a, it's a complicated legacy and really depends on the kind of time frame that you use at looking at it, what we mean when we say the post-revolutionary state. Mexico had the fortune, or perhaps we should say the misfortune, to be located next door to Hollywood. The country's revolution featured in a number of Hollywood films, usually as an exotic backdrop. Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch is a good example. But there were some movies that put the Mexican Revolution at the heart of the narrative. In the 1950s, Ilya Kazan made a biopic about the revolutionary leader Emiliano Zapata, with a script by John Steinbeck and Marlon Brando in the lead role. In the following clip, Brando delivers an impassioned speech to a group of Mexican peasants. This land is yours. But you must protect it. It won't be yours long if you don't protect it. If necessary, with your lives and your children with their lives. Don't discount your enemies. They will be back. And if your house is burned, build it again. If your corn is destroyed, replant. If your children die, bear more. If they drive you out of the valley, live on the sides of the mountain, but live. You've always looked for leaders. Strong men without faults, there aren't any. They're only men like yourselves. They change. They desert. They die. There are no leaders but yourselves. Sergio Leone made his own film about the Mexican Revolution two decades later. Sucker stars Rod Steiger as a Mexican bandit and James Coburn as an Irish revolutionary. Both men have questionable accents. And Leone got the chronology wrong. The Mexican Revolution came before the Irish one, not the other way round. In the following scene, Steiger expresses a much more cynical view of what revolution means for ordinary people. My country is me and my family. Well, your country's also Huerta, and the governor, and the landlords, and Gunther Ruiz and his locusts. And this little revolution we're having here. A revolution? Revolution, please don't try to tell me about revolution. I know all about the revolutions and how they start. The people that read the books, they go to the people that don't read the books. They put people and say, Ho ho, the time has come to have a change. Shit, shush. I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the revolutions. The people who read the books, go to the people who can't read the books, the poor people and say, We have to have a change. So the poor people make the change, huh? And then the people who read the books, they all sit around the big polished tables and they talk and talk and talk and eat and eat and eat. Huh? But what has happened to the poor people? They're dead! That's your revolution. What did the revolution mean for Mexico's relationship with global capitalism and the world financial system? 
the revolution itself, that decade of fighting, you know, had really serious implications for Mexico's insertion into the international financial system and the Mexican state's relationship with the broader global capitalism because there were land holdings that were destroyed, you know, foreign companies that had mining concessions and railroad concessions and large landed estates, you know, sort of widespread destruction during the revolution meant that many investments of foreign uh, foreign investors were destroyed during the actual fighting itself. And then the debt that the sort of public debt that had been taken on both by the Porfirio Diaz regime before the revolution started, and then some debt that was actually contracted and taken on during the revolutionary period in, you know, 1913-ish, those debts were repudiated by the Mexican post-revolutionary state, the leaders who kind of took leadership during and after the revolution. And so that rejection of that, that outstanding foreign debt, the inability of the Mexican state to pay bondholders and to pay back loans that had been made to the state, in addition to the destruction of kind of foreign holdings of property, really put Mexico in the crosshairs of the international capitalist class. And they organized broadly into really sort of cartels, creditors, cartels, oil men cartels. Um, so we have institutions like the International Committee of Bankers on Mexico and the National Association for the Protection of American Rights in Mexico. These are organizations where particularly U.S., but also British and some French capitalists get together to really organize the interests of the capitalists vis-a-vis the Mexican state. And they lobby not only the kind of national governments in the United States and in Great Britain, but they also, for instance, show up at the 1919 Paris Peace Conference at the close of World War I to argue that, you know, if the League of Nations is to be formed, it should do something about the Mexican, the kind of intransigence of the Mexican state vis-a-vis international capital. So there is a real fear after the Mexican Revolution, that the new constitution and that the intransigence of the Mexican government will mean that the kind of rights and privileges that foreign capital had enjoyed previously in the in the country would be foreclosed upon. What actually happens in the aftermath of the revolution is, in fact, you know, the state finds ways to be conciliatory toward foreign capitalist interests over and over and over again. But they continue to be excluded in the post-revolutionary period from the international financial system in particular. So while negotiations are made with, you know, particular oil companies and landholders and many foreign investors actually make more money in Mexico after the period of the revolution than they had been making previously, just kind of paradoxical. But when it comes to the international financial system in particular, Mexico really remains shut out of the kind of growing global financial markets from that period of the Mexican Revolution forward into the 1940s. So there are, you know, three decades in which Mexico remains kind of completely shut out of systems of international credit and finance. And they are over that period engaged in bilateral and multilateral negotiations via this International Bankers Committee, etc., to try to resolve this, but those negotiations repeatedly falter. The Mexican state and the bankers will reach an agreement and then they'll try to make a payment and then it will quickly become clear that the Mexican state can't actually continue to pay and so they renege on the agreement and that happens over and over again, especially in the 1920s. And so the Mexican state really in the period between the kind of 
close of the revolution, say, you know, the 1917 constitution um, up through the 1940s, Mexico's exclusion from those international financial markets is really important because it really shapes. And one of the things that I really try to show in the book is the extent to which that exclusion shapes how Mexico thinks about the reform of international economic governance and international institutions, the ones to which it particularly belongs at the moment, the Pan-American Union, questions about the League of Nations, and then eventually going forward into the United Nations system, that exclusion means that Mexico is very different from some other places in Latin America, which during the 1920s experience what is known as the dance of the millions. And this is a kind of speculative inflow of capital from banks in London and in New York, speculative investment in Latin America that then once the 1929 stock market crash happens and the Great Depression begins, that capital is then just immediately sucked back out of the region um, just as quickly as it came in. And so that kind of boom and bust in the international financial system that happened elsewhere in the region of Latin America doesn't happen in Mexico because Mexico remains shut out of that system. The way that Mexico is completely excluded from that system of, of private finance really shapes Mexican state ideas about how to create new financial and economic institutions that might tackle some of the inequities that they see arising from that situation. Well, that leads directly on to the next question, which is, how did the leaders of Mexico develop that plan that you alluded to for reform of international economic governance? And how did they set about trying to implement that plan? It happens in sort of fits and starts over the 1930s and 1940s. So the kind of earliest interests come in the 1920s in a body that's called the Inter-American High Commission, which is a group of sort of economic experts based in the Pan-American Union in Washington, D.C. And they exist kind of to, you know, the Pan-American Union is founded to kind of foster commercial relations in the Americas. It's explicitly thought of as a way to bring commercial relations into into closer collaboration between the various countries of the Americas, the United States and the rest of Latin America. And so within that, this body, the High Commission, begins to study questions about finance, about trade, etc. And so there are early indications, and Latin Americans really are arguing for the need for a new international bank that will serve the kind of industrialization needs and needs about agricultural economic development from, you know, the earliest parts of the 20th century. But the Mexicans really begin to take up this idea in the 1920s and then really pursue it very strongly beginning in the 1930s. And really a kind of key flashpoint is the 1933 World Economic Conference in London, This is known as, you know, a kind of famous moment because it's the moment at which the Roosevelt administration will sort of renege on its promises for international cooperation and decide that, you know, the the needs of sort of national recovery will take precedent over international cooperation. So the Mexican representative who goes to London in 1933, he comes very much prepared to say, okay, we're willing to make sacrifices for the kind of resetting the global economy if it can be done in such a way to make it fairer to the poorer countries of the world, to sort of save capitalism from itself in that moment and when the entire world economy seems to have crashed in the early 30s. And when the Roosevelt administration comes and sort of pours cold water on that idea, the Latin Americans and the Mexicans in particular realize that they're going to have to work a little harder to make sure that international economic cooperation first happens and second kind of redounds to their interest. 
So they then immediately go from London to the Inter-American Conference at Montevideo in 1933. And it's there that the Mexican um, foreign minister, whose name is José Manuel Puig Casarán, he comes with a kind of radical restructuring of how he understands international debt and credit. And he does this thing where he calls for a new legal and philosophic conception of credit. But basically what he's arguing is that the bankers in the global north have to realize that if they want to make a profit from international banking, they need to have markets for their surplus capital. And he's arguing that the service that borrowers provide to lenders is just as important as vice versa, right? He says that this is an an equation of at least two terms. So he's arguing for the interdependent nature of international finance. And in that way, he says, he, he argues sort of very strongly against the idea that international affairs should itself be structured by these questions of sort of your international credit rating or whether you're a debtor or a creditor, right? He says that the creditors shouldn't have all of the decision-making power, that there need to be multilateral institutions that will sort of give voice and vote to the poorer countries because their role in this process is just as important to the success of global capitalism via finance as are the lenders. And so he puts forward a really forceful argument there in 1933. And one of the results of that is to argue for the creation of this institution that comes to be known as the Inter-American Bank. What happens in this moment is really interesting because the Mexicans, Mexican officials get together with officials from the rest of the region, really, to begin to argue that there needs to be this new kind of public multilateral lending institution. And they they basically convince U.S. officials, the most important of whom is um, Harry Dexter White of the Treasury Department, of the kind of logic of this idea. And U.S. officials come to see, like, if there was this multilateral lending institution, it would have good implications for the United States. One of the most important, um, Harry Dexter White says, is that if there is this multilateral lending institution, Latin Americans can no longer complain about dollar diplomacy. They can no longer argue that the United States is kind of using its stranglehold over finance to push the Latin Americans to do what they want. And so various planners in the New Deal state, people like Adolf Burley, etc., come to understand that this multilateral bank could actually be useful for what the United States wants. And so the U.S. planners take it up. They, within this this inter-American high commission, basically, and, and, you know, the aftermath of that, they begin to plan for this institution. And by 1940, it comes to have a charter and bylaws that have been consulted with all the countries of the Americas. And there's kind of presented this fully formed plan for what would have been the world's first multilateral development bank. And I think the thing that's really crucial about that idea is that it comes from the demands made by Latin Americans, by these Mexican officials and their allies from elsewhere in the region. And so it's a really novel idea having this multilateral development institution. What happens in the aftermath of that is that um, the private bankers themselves, Wall Street interests, think that this bank is probably going to compete with them when it comes to their overseas branch banking, overseas lending. They think it's kind of an unfair state competitor to private banking. And so they, once again, they organize and sort of block this effort by lobbying senators within the Senate Banking Committee to basically make it so that the the ratification of the charter and bylaws never happens within U.S. Congress. 
But what happens in the meantime is that those same U.S. officials, people like Harry Dexter White, have begun planning for the global institutions that will come to govern the global economy in this way. And so many of the lessons from this inter-American bank moment are then taken up in the planning for what become the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. Mexico is really instrumental in that moment in making sure and putting the language in the actual articles of agreement that, for instance, the International Bank uh, for Reconstruction and Development will focus just as much on development as on reconstruction. They really make the case that, you know, going forward, because the majority of the countries in the world are industrializing countries, they are not yet developed countries, that these institutions will have to pay close attention to the needs and wants of the developing world. So the Mexicans really get the development mandate of the Bretton Woods institutions put into the kind of very founding charters of those moments. So in many ways, those institutions and that long struggle is an attempt to kind of address the way that Mexico had been in their eyes unfairly shut out of the international financial system and try to create new multilateral institutions that will focus not only on representation of the poorer countries of the world, allowing them to have kind of particular votes and leadership, et cetera, but also on the redistribution of productive capital from north to south. So importantly, one of the arguments that the book makes is that this is where the very system of international development as we know it today, the kind of apparatus of international development, these multilateral organizations, the idea that there should be this kind of multilateral structure for planning how to distribute capital for industrialization and economic development efforts, that that really emerges out of these demands that happen in the 1930s and 1940s, and particularly led in in important moments by these Mexican state actors. Lazaro Cardenas is perhaps best remembered today outside Mexico for having granted asylum to the Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky. Agents of Stalin eventually caught up with Trotsky in his Mexico City home in 1940. In this newsreel clip from soon after his arrival, Trotsky thanks Cardenas for his hospitality and denounces the Moscow show trials. Esteemed audience, you will easily understand if I begin my short address to you in my very imperfect English by addressing my warm thanks to the Mexican people and to the man who leads them with such merit and courage, President Cardenas. When monstrous and absurd accusations were hurled at me and my family, when my wife and myself were under the lock and key of the Norwegian government, without being able to defend ourselves, the Mexican government opened the doors of this magnificent country and said to us, here you can freely defend your rights and your honor. Naturally, it is not a sympathy for myself, for my ideas, which has motivated President Cardenas, but a fidelity to his own ideas. All the more meritorious, then, is his act of democratic hospitality, the rare these days. On the world stage, the image of revolutionary Mexico owed a great deal to its famous mural painters. They were intensely political artists in both their work and their lives. One of those painters, Diego Rivera, put Trotsky up in his home when he came to Mexico. Another, David Siqueiros, was a supporter of the Mexican Communist Party, who took part in the first unsuccessful attempt to kill Trotsky. Rivera is less famous today than his wife, the painter Frida Kahlo, who is the subject of a Hollywood movie with Salma Hayek in the lead role. Here's a clip from another Hollywood film that includes Rivera as a character, Cradle Will Rock. 
It depicts the famous occasion when Nelson Rockefeller commissioned Rivera to paint a mural in one of his buildings. Rockefeller was horrified to discover that Rivera had included a figure of Lenin. Why can't you paint another face over it? Would you prefer Stalin? I don't. I was kicked out of the Communist Party for disagreeing with him. But if you want, I'll paint Stalin. You're not being very cooperative. I am too. I told you that I would paint Abraham Lincoln surrounded by freed slaves to counterbalance Lenin. And you rejected the idea. Why Lenin? He's a revolutionary leader like your Washington and uh, Jefferson. Hey, there's an idea. Paint Jefferson. That's not a bad idea. That's not a bad idea at all. What do you say? What do you say? I said, ridiculous. I said Abraham Lincoln to balance Lenin. But Lenin stays. This is not a revolution, Diego. This is the United States. It's not Russia. Mm -hmm. And I am Diego Rivera, not Frederick Remington. You understand that it is entirely inappropriate to feature a communist leader in the lobby of a Rockefeller building. No. I believe nothing in art is inappropriate. I paint what I see. We're going to have to insist that the face be removed. Absolutely not! Look, you son of a bitch, we're trying to be nice! This is betrayal. Betrayal? Yes! There was no indication in your sketches you would be featuring communist leaders in the mural. You were hired on the basis of said sketches, and you've changed them. It's not fair! Lenin stays! How did Mexican governments relate to the wave of decolonization that began after the Second World War? Did they see the new post-colonial states as natural allies for their project? I think it's different at different moments. So one important thing to recognize is by the post-war period, the Mexican state has very much consolidated this single party system that is run on a kind of tight corporate structure in which there is an understanding that social conflict should be mediated through kind of corporatist institutions between capital labor and the state. So there is a kind of important mode of central planning that's going on within the Mexican state that is nationalist and protectionist. They begin to pursue import substitution industrialization, but it's led through this kind of single party, soft authoritarian political system that really doesn't allow for much dissent to brew outside of those channels. So that's a kind of important aspect of what goes on in this moment and as decolonization struggles really begin to take off uh, in the post-war period. There's an interesting moment if we go all the way back to the end of World War One, the Mexican official who shows up in Paris for the negotiations over the Paris Peace Conference, you know, what happens there is a really complicated story. Mexico is not actually sat at the conference, is not allowed to be one of the neutrals represented at Versailles. Um, but when this Mexican official meets with a U.S. official from the U.S. Peace Commission, he kind of ends the conversation by saying, you know, one thing that we in Mexico know is that you know, um, every colony today means a future war of independence. So Mexico really pr prides itself on its support for anti-imperialism, for resistance to imperial structures. But once we get to the second half of the 20th century and these decolonization movements are happening, the relationship gets a little bit more complicated. So the Mexican state at various points particularly in the 1940s, takes on a really important anti-communist bent. So Mexico very much aligns itself with a kind of global anti-communist idea, but it also wants to maintain kind of plausible distance from the United States so that governments in Mexico won't be seen as being sort of 
lapdogs of the, you know, the empire in the north, which of course, you know, in the 1840s took half of Mexico's territory, etc. So that kind of complicated question of maintaining an anti-communist stance while maintaining distance from the United States really comes to a head as we move into especially the 1960s and then the 1970s. Kind of Slightly distant anti-communist cooperation with the United States allows Mexico to kind of more deeply integrate its economy with the economy of the United States. But under particular administrations, first, Adolfo López Mateos, who takes power in 1958 and is the president until 1964, and then under Luis Echeverria, who takes power in 1970, both of those governments really try to make a strong case that Mexico is part of the third world, right? And that Mexico has a kind of leadership role to play within the third world. So the question of sort of how like or not like these other countries Mexico is, is different at different times. And, you know, the one of the ways that this comes out is whether Mexico will, for instance, join the non-aligned movement. As the non-aligned movement begins to really take off and begin organizing, the question is, if Cuba is a part of the non-aligned movement, is it really non-aligned? Mexico refuses to break with, to make a diplomatic break with states like revolutionary Cuba. Fidel Castro went to Mexico in the 1950s while he was preparing to return to Cuba with comrades like Che Guevara. The following report from Al Jazeera looked at Castro's Mexican connection. It may be more than half a century since Fidel Castro lived in exile in Mexico City, but his time here is still remembered and his legacy still celebrated. In coffee shops like this one in the heart of the capital, Castro and his brother Raul planned their armed rebellion. He met Ernesto Che Guevara in Mexico, a man who'd become one of his key allies and the poster boy of the revolution. There are people here who still have vivid memories of seeing Fidel Castro drinking coffee and smoking his trademark cigars. He had a great deal of personality, and those times beards were uncommon, but he and his brother sported beards. He had a very penetrating look. It was 1955. Castro and his men came to places like these in downtown Mexico City and meticulously planned their attack on the Batista regime. There's always been a brotherhood with Cuba. That's why they came down from the Cuban mountains to Mexico, where they prepared and fortified themselves ready for their adventure. Once Fidel Castro's plan was in place, he and some 80 men went to the Mexican fishing village of Tuxpan on the Gulf Coast. They bought a used yacht, boarded it and set off for Cuba, not knowing that they were also sailing into history. In the years that followed, Castro's relations with Mexico went through their ups and downs. But his role as leader of the Latin American left is still celebrated here. I think generations of people will remember him. The older ones will always have a certain affinity with Fidel and remember him with nostalgia. Fidel's history and background are totally revolutionary. It takes a special person to do what Fidel did. And it's that legacy of standing up to Mexico's powerful northern neighbor that will continue to define Castro in the minds of many Mexicans. Victoria Gatenby, Al Jazeera. 
there is a strong tendency from the 1930s through a foreign policy doctrine in Mexico known as the Estrada Doctrine, which says that, you know, diplomatic recognition should not be used as a kind of cudgel over domestic politics. So the Mexican state has this policy that they will recognize the people in power, no matter whether it's they are seen as kind of legitimate or non-legitimate. They don't want to use diplomatic recognition as a kind of political tool. So Mexico never breaks with Fidel Castro's Cuba, much to the chagrin of the United States. But as historians like Renata Keller have shown, right, even as they continue to maintain diplomatic relations with Castro and welcome visits from Castro, etc., and from Dorticos, they are also helping the CIA surveil Cuban agents in Mexico and really any Mexicans who are thought as being too sympathetic to the Cuban revolution. So there's a kind of outward facing, inward facing question of what's going on there. When it comes to the non-aligned movement, the question is sort of, should Mexico join up with this thing, the non-aligned movement? In some ways it makes sense, but they decide, they make this decision to say, we're not non-aligned, we're independent. So they have a foreign policy that is even independent, not only of the United States and the Soviet Union, but independent of the non-aligned movement itself. But they sort of threaten that they they lean towards the non-aligned movement in a way that opens up some space for them to make more requests from these multilateral institutions from the United States. So one of the things that happens is there's an important non-aligned meeting in the early 60s where Mexico makes threatening noises about going to this meeting. And when they finally decide that they're not going to go, they are rewarded with further multilateral loans from the World Bank, the Export-Import Bank, and the Inter-American Development Bank. So Mexico really uses this third worldism, I think, in the 1960s and in the 1970s to kind of push its economic interests, to try to shape the international sphere in a way that will be supportive of this state-led industrialization, import substitution industrialization project that they are pursuing. And that is, you know, despite being import substitution industrialization, is still really dependent on particular foreign investment in particular sectors. So the kind of tightrope that the Mexican state walks in this moment is maintaining its plausible distance from U.S. power while not pushing away the most important source of foreign credit and foreign investment. So particularly in the 1960s, that's the relationship that you see with the rest of the developing world. Viva Kennedy roars from a million and a half throats as President Kennedy drives through the broad avenues of Mexico City. John F. Kennedy went to Mexico for an official state visit. Jackie Kennedy helped him out with her command of Spanish for a local audience. His own linguistic skills were a little more basic. Nos hace recordar que el progreso material se puede alcanzar sin destruir los valores del corazón y la mente humana. ¡Viva México! Sí, uh, muchas gracias, amigos. As we move into the 1970s, and the global economic crisis that follows, particularly the 1971 collapse of the Bretton Woods system, and then after the oil shock, then you see Mexico attempting to take a little bit more of a um, of a kind of confrontational role and trying to push 
In the 1970s, President Luis Echeverria proposes this instrument at the UN called the um, Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. And this is a UN instrument that is intended to codify kind of national rights to subsoil, to development, to the regulation of multinational corporations and finance. Um, So they want to create a kind of UN framework for the kind of nationalist but multilateral framework of development that they had been really pursuing over the previous decades. So Mexico makes many more, under Echeverria, Mexico makes many more connections to other governments in the third world, the global south, but still tries to maintain this, um, the Mexico's stance as a kind of good creditor, you know, trying to maintain that Mexico is a good credit risk and that banks should continue to lend. And they very much do, right? During the petrodollar boom, banks pour capital into Mexico. And so we have a situation where, you know, Mexico goes from having a foreign debt of just a few billion dollars at the beginning of the 1970s to having a foreign debt of well over $80 billion at the end of the 1970s. So again, the kind of political relations in this moment, as was true in the earlier period, are very much structured by the question of access to international finance. What was the nature of the high growth period that became known as the Mexican miracle? And what did that growth mean for the different classes in Mexican society? It is a moment in which there emerges uh, very much a kind of Mexican middle class, for sure, particularly in Mexico City, but it is a very uneven kind of developmental model. So You know, there is a great deal of investment in industry, particularly after 1965, when the border industrialization program, what we know as the maquila program, the maquiladoras along the border, really ramp up. And so there is, you know, high, there are very high growth rates during this moment, the Mexican miracle, right above 6%. Population growth is about 3%. So, you know, Mexico is growing. And there is a sense that there is a kind of new prosperity, but it's not reaching everyone. And particularly left out are rural communities, agricultural development, indigenous communities. So the North benefits much more in the industrialists based around the city of Monterrey and at the border. And the South is very much left out. And so what you see in that moment is the emergence of not only renewed resistance to this emerging soft authoritarian, what they call in Mexico, the dicta blanda, right? Instead of a dictadura, a hard, a hard dictatorship, it's a kind of soft dictatorship. So you begin to see political struggle against that, particularly in the student movements that will take off in the 1960s. But in the countryside, you also begin to see guerrilla movements and you begin to see guerrilla resistance very much because of the idea that this political system has left out so many people in rural Mexico. And there you see the emergence of what, you know, in Mexico we call the dirty war. And it's not as overt as the dirty war in the dictatorships in the Southern Cone, for example, in Argentina and Chile, and even in Brazil. But it is very much an attempt to kind of quash any dissent that goes outside of this kind of corporatist model that I was mentioning. And so that unevenness will come to really haunt the Mexican regime, because particularly after 1968, the famous massacre at Tlatelolco, when the Olympics have come to Mexico City and protesting students and families are massacred by snipers in this plaza in the northern part of Mexico City, 
the legitimacy of the regime had long sort of been premised on its stability. And that stability begins to be eroded because of these underlying contradictions, because of the way in which the gains from the Mexican miracle are both reliant on this this authoritarian system and are not distributed equally around the country. In the following clip, the Mexican novelist Carlos Fuentes and the US sociologist Harry Edwards talk about the massacre in Mexico City during the Olympics. They wanted something called freedom, imagine. As simple as that. They wanted freedom and they went out in the streets to demand this freedom. And the answer of the government was to mow them down in October 2nd, 1968 at Tlatelolco, the plaza of the free cultures. Tlatelolco, the same place where Pedro de Alvarado had massacred the Aztecs in 1521. There were so many people being picked up, uh, so many people being killed, that they were literally hauling out corpses uh, in fishnets under helicopters like they did in Vietnam because they did not want... uh, uh, mass funerals and so forth, uh, either just prior to and most certainly not during the, the Olympic Games. The United States leads the Olympics in medal awards and is just about supreme. Edwards helped organize the Olympic Project for Human Rights, which inspired the U.S. athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos to mount a famous protest against racism at the Games. And then stood on the victory platform with bowed heads, wearing black socks and gloves in a racial protest. And so that legitimacy crisis that begins in the 19 in the late 1960s with with 1968 at Tlatelolco reemerges in 1971 with um, the Corpus Christi massacre what is in Mexico called the Alconazo when you know uh, party aligned thugs also beat student protesters in the streets and then particularly as we move into the 1980s with the debt crisis, the 1985 earthquake, these are the things that will really begin to erode the stability of the Mexican political system, which had long been considered kind of its most important legacy, the thing that kept Mexico a kind of good credit risk and that kept it a good partner for the United States was the way in which the system had been so stable, even though it was not actually democratic. And, you know, the person who was elected was chosen by the party and it was foreordained that they were going to win. Stability was more important both within Mexico and to the United States than the actual practice of democracy. And you begin to see that stability eroding in the late 1960s into the 1970s and then completely fracture in the 1980s. So those are kind of legacies of the maldistribution and the political system that emerges as what we think of as the Mexican miracle. How does Mexico fit into a wider picture of developmentalism in Latin America or in East Asia, late developing capitalist economies in the global south that didn't follow the model later known as the Washington Consensus? Right. So, you know, the interesting thing is that Mexico will come to follow the Washington consensus after the 1982 debt crisis. But in the period before that, the kind of high period of Mexican developmentalism, they follow the kind of import substitution industrialization model that we see, you know, not only in Latin America, but other places in the developing world. And that is based on sort of high tariff rates, subsidies for state-owned corporations, um, subsidies for, um, you know, social services, fuel, etc. And so in that way, Mexico is is very typical of the kind of industrialization strategy that is pursued in the 1950s, 1960s, into the 1970s, perhaps with the caveat that because Mexico is so close to the United States and is so tied to U.S. markets, 
that that integration with the United States is maybe more important than other places around the world. So Mexico will continue to pursue this strategy of import substitution industrialization up through the 1970s. But what you'll see beginning to happen as we move into the 1960s, especially, and then especially in the 1970s, is this increasing reliance on foreign debt. So one of the things that happens importantly in the early 1970s is that Echeverria tries, and he's not the first to have tried this, but he tries again to reform the tax system in Mexico to make it so that those who are earning a great deal at the top, the industrialists, etc., actually pay into the system and there can be some redistribution via you know, the state budget. And the business associations are able to effectively block this. They basically have a veto over this policy. They make it so that they are not taxed you know, progressively in the way that the state wants. And so Echeverria himself comes to rely more and more on foreign lending for the kind of social programs, subsidies, and state investment that he's interested in. So, you know, what that means is this increasingly unsustainable level of debt that will come to a head in the 1982 debt crisis, where we have the Mexican finance minister showing up in Washington in 1982 and saying, look, Mexico cannot pay. We can't pay the interest payments. We will not be able to make this. And there's a realization at that moment that the exposure of U.S. banks to Mexican debt is massive. And that in fact, if Mexico is allowed to default on this debt, it will take down not just the Mexican economy, but large parts of the international financial system itself. Um, So many banks have so much exposure to Mexican debt that this threat of default is a threat of kind of institutional instability, um, systemic risk. And so it is in that moment in 1982 that the US government gets together with the IMF and the World Bank especially and creates these structural adjustment programs and these conditional lending programs that then come to really constitute what we think of as the Washington consensus after that period. It is a moment when, you know, the IMF has been making stabilization loans, the World Bank has been making development loans to Mexico up to that point, but they have not been able up to that point to kind of reorient economic policy in the kind of liberal way that they might imagine that they want. But after 1982, they're able to impose very strict conditionalities that are about privatizing state-owned enterprises, lowering tariff rates, all of the things that we think of as part of the Washington consensus. And so Mexico really becomes the kind of flashpoint for where those kind of policies will be put in place. So in some ways, it's a very typical story. It's kind of the typical story of the move from, you know, sort of an import substitution industrialization strategy to a neoliberal reorientation via the Washington consensus. But with the caveat that there is kind of much more integration the whole way with the U.S. financial system and with U.S. markets because of the long shared border, because of labor migration across the border, because of this border industrialization program. So um, in many ways, Mexico is kind of the, the typical case of what we think of as the kind of problems of import substitution industrialization that are then reoriented entirely into the neoliberal model. You've touched on this question already in relation to Cuba and in relation to the domestic political arena in Mexico itself. But as a general question, how did the Mexican state stand in relation to the left-wing movements that took power or tried to take power in Latin America during the 1960s and 70s, whether they were revolutionary movements like the Cuban or parliamentary ones like the Chilean left? And how did Washington perceive its role? 
Mexico has this longstanding foreign policy doctrine, the Estrada doctrine, about, you know, maintaining recognition of governments. And so they maintain recognition with Cuba. They maintain relationship with Cuba. They very much support publicly the Allende government in Chile come before the United Nations to argue, you know, for the Allende government and against kind of foreign interference. The the move against foreign interference is a really important guiding ideology of Mexican foreign policy in the post-revolutionary period. The idea of foreign interference is one that very much guides the Mexican state from that point of the 1840s forward, right? So if you go to Mexico City, you can go to this incredible museum of foreign interventions, which details the ways in which the United States, France, the United States, again, other countries have really come to try to interfere with Mexico's internal affairs. So that's very much a guiding ideology that explains in some ways the way that Mexico continues to recognize Fidel Castro's Cuba, supports publicly the Allende government. But on the other hand, one of the things that my book looks at is the extent, this kind of complicated relationship that I've mentioned, where the other thing that Mexico is trying to do is maintain its access to foreign capital and foreign investment, right? So it can very much publicly be saying, you know, Allende's Chile should not be interfered with, we're not going to break relations with Fidel Castro, but at the same time, kind of maintaining relationships with the United States that allow the US state to surveil the Cubans and their sympathizers. And frankly, you know, when Echeverria arrives in Santiago de Chile for the 1972 UNCTAD meeting, where he kind of announces this charter of economic rights and duties of states that he will pursue, he's kind of horrified by what he sees going on in Chile, precisely because there is the idea that, um, you know, social stability has been the real watchword in Mexico. So clamping down on dissent is very important. And when he arrives in Chile for this meeting of the, uh, the UN Conference on Trade and Development in 1972, there are these massive street demonstrations, right, both from the right wing who are anti-Allende and from the left wing, you know, people who think that UNCTAD is going to sell out the global left left-wing movement and that the meeting that's going to happen there is basically undermining the kind of revolutionary potential of Chile's government. And so Echeverria is kind of horrified when he lands in Santiago and he sees this kind of massive you know, ferment on the streets. He thinks like, we don't have this in Mexico. Of course, that's not true because he, he has himself participated in the repression of the guerrilla movements, the student movement, etc. But the story that he tells himself is that the level of kind of social upheaval in Chile is dangerous and that there needs to be more of an understanding of Mexico's system. And so he actually arrives in Washington, D.C. for kind of bilateral talks with Nixon and Kissinger and he sits down with them and he said he explicitly references his role in kind of domestic repression and the way in which, you know, his part in that has kept Mexico, quote unquote, stable to argue that the United States should support the Mexican vision for the future and that that will preclude there being sort of more Cubas, more Chiles, more Vietnams. Right. So this kind of tripartite corporate structure that exists in Mexico where labor, capital and the state are sort of brought together to mediate conflict conflict, Echeverria kind of sees that as being something that can be scaled up to the global arena. And that's sort of how he understands this thing, the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States. The Mexican officials say things like, what needs to be done is to make good 
quote, collective contracts between the global north and the global south, the rich countries and the poor countries. And so with that kind of international planning, they will have scaled up this kind of domestic system that Mexico has put in place. Of course, it relies on this kind of anti-democratic repressive state within Mexico. So it has that contradiction built into it, right? But Again, the question always sort of at its base for these actors in the Mexican state is ensuring that the development model that they've put in place, which, you know, is about rapid industrialization within Mexico, but requires foreign capital because there is not enough domestic capital for that kind of industrialization strategy. It's about always maintaining access to that, not pushing so far that, you know, the, the Mexican state might scare off its creditors and that Mexico might not would no longer be the kind of good credit risk that it had emerged as in the 1960s. Mexico has, you know, the highest credit rating of any developing country and just receives massive amounts of official development lending as well as private lending. So maintaining access to that capital, right, is the thing that's always in the background of these relations with these other revolutionary governments. Um, and so Mexico in, in the negotiations over the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States really acts as a mediator between more radical countries in the third world, the Algerians, the Chileans, uh, the Peruvians under Velasco, and the United States. And so they really see themselves as kind of straddling that line and being a kind of mediator between the global north that wants a kind of liberal capitalist understanding and more radical countries in the global south that want to overthrow the existing system and come up with something new. Mexico, in developing this thing, the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties of States, is trying very much to kind of walk the line between those two. Barely a decade after the 1982 debt crisis, Mexico was plunged into another financial meltdown. There was such panic on the Mexican stock market that some brokers advised their clients to sell regardless of the loss. The 1994 peso crisis came soon after the Zapatista uprising in Chiapas and cast a shadow over the triumphal launch of NAFTA. Here would equal a 750-point drop on the Dow Jones Industrial Average. At one point, the Mexican market looked like a meltdown. That was only one blow to Americans who had $53 billion invested in the Mexican stock market before the crisis. The peso also continued to collapse. It has lost 40% of its value to the dollar in the last three weeks. And the crisis has grown despite $10 billion in aid from the United States and Canada, Mexico's partners in NAFTA. It's now almost 40 years since the Mexican debt crisis that proved to be such a watershed, not just for Mexico, but for the entire world system in a way, for the development of neoliberalism and the Washington Consensus. And it's also more than 25 years since the passage of NAFTA, Mm -hmm. which further helped consolidate that system. It seems like a very long way removed from the time when Mexican governments and diplomats could propose something along the lines of the Charter of Economic Rights and Duties. What potential do you think exists today for Mexico to escape its position in the hierarchy of global capitalism, whether that would mean a socialist alternative or a different model of capitalist development? The current government is not especially interested in broader international reforms. And there's very much a sense in which the the struggle for reforming global economic governance that I really trace in my book from, you know, 1919 to 1982 that the Mexican state undertakes at various important moments, that struggle is very much foreclosed by 1982 and the aftermath of it. And so part of that is about an internal power struggle. Um, Obviously, some of it is driven by 
the international institutions, by the U.S. government, driven from the outside. But some of it is also driven by a kind of power struggle within Mexico over the kind of model that should be pursued. And so when 1982 happens um, and there is this move to kind of reorient the Mexican economy toward a more liberal, you know, less protectionist model, a more export-oriented and less protectionist model, there are actors within Mexico who have been arguing for that for decades already, right? So those industrialists in the North, they had wanted the kind of protection that allowed them to get off the ground in the earlier, in the 1940s, in the 1950s. But there begins to emerge within the Mexican capitalist class a new set of experts who are really arguing for these kind of liberalizing reforms before 1982 even happens. The sociologist Sarah Babb has traced this very well to try and understand, you know, who the Mexican neoliberals were and where their ideas come from. So there's a domestic constituency that is sort of ready for that moment when it emerges. So, you know, it's very much true that in the period sort of maybe at least since 1988, um, and then going forward, probably to the elections of 2018 within Mexico, those 30 years, there was very much a kind of broad consensus within Mexico, within the governing classes and, and the business classes within Mexico, that the neoliberal model was the way forward, right? That integration with the United States via NAFTA, that increasing free trade, that these things were the way to kind of orient Mexico. And what we saw was, you know, that in fact, they didn't deliver the results that they were intended to deliver. You know, when Carlos Salinas announces, you know, what NAFTA should bring, he says something about how in the aftermath of NAFTA, Mexico will export goods and not people. And then, of course, we see the massive mobilization of people who are forced to migrate because, like the earlier models, NAFTA just devastates the Mexican countryside and makes it so that particularly poor farmers can no longer make a living growing and taking to market any of their typical crops, things like corn especially. So that kind of thorough reorientation of the Mexican economy and those 30 years of like real faith in neoliberalism come to a head under the previous government, under Peña Nieto, who puts together this kind of a cross-party pact to really put the nail in the coffin of Mexican state-led industrialization. And so he, he tries to really reorient the last sectors of the Mexican economy that have not been fully liberalized. He tries to break the power of the teachers union, for example, and he opens the oil sector to foreign investment for the first time since 1938, since that nationalization. And in response to that, and also to the increasing drug war violence that had taken over Mexico in the previous decade, Andres Manuel López Obrador is elected in 2018 very much with the idea that he is against the kind of neoliberal consensus. One of the things that that has meant for the López Obrador government has been moving back to kind of further state investment in oil, in electricity. Um, he's building a massive new oil refinery a mega project that is a kind of train in the Yucatan Peninsula that's supposed to serve tourism and development in the South. Um, so he's he's falling back on some of the kind of 1960s, even 1950s understandings of these kind of mega project industrial development led by the state. But there is not a sense that Mexico is kind of leading at this point um, attempts to kind of reform the global economy and the global economic system in which Mexico sits. Mexico, for example, has not been a big recipient of Chinese overseas development aid that we have seen in other countries in the region. So those kinds of questions about 
South-South cooperation, um, whatever you think of that in the case of China, right, have not been as pertinent in Mexico as they have been in other places. So I do think that important changes are being made today within the Mexican state and the Mexican economic system. The Lopez Obrador government very much has uh, an orientation toward the poor and towards social services that has, you know, really radically stripped some of the kinds of entrenched privileges and power that, you know, people attached to the neoliberal project, whether they are, you know, business people, intellectuals, political figures, has really kind of shifted the conversation about the, away from the things that they want toward the poorest people in Mexico. But obviously, the coronavirus crisis, the ongoing drug war instability, these are these are kind of real constraints that the Lopez Obrador government faces. And so thus far, I haven't seen any attempts by the current Mexican government, despite being swept in on this kind of anti-neoliberal rhetoric to make the kind of move back toward the reform of the international order. And I think that it is because of the continued way in which we saw emerge in the 1970s, the way in which Mexico recognizes that it is very much beholden to these international credit markets and that Mexico maintaining its kind of good stance in these international credit markets remains really important. One of the legacies of the 1970s is that the Lopez Obrador government is really loath to take on unsustainable foreign debt, right? There is a recognition that high levels of foreign debt is what led into the 1982 crisis, is what led into the neoliberal transition. And so even in this moment where the coronavirus is just out of control in Mexico and the IMF is saying countries should be taking loans, you can you know, have new special drawing rights, you should be borrowing money and doing deficit spending, um, the Mexican government is very loath to do that because they're... Um, Lopez Obrador is very much shaped by the crisis, the kind of over-indebtedness of the 1970s and the results of that. So right now, there isn't coming from Mexico some of the attempts to kind of reform the international order that we saw in an earlier moment in the pink tide, right? So one of the, the kind of parallels that I think is instructive is thinking about, you know, in the early, mid-2000s, the 2010-ish era when, for instance, the Chavez government in Venezuela was trying to promote the Banco del Sur, the Bank of the South, as a kind of alternative development association. You see those kinds of things come up, and I think people hoped that maybe the BRICS consortium would be something like that. So there, there continue to be these ideas that kind of South-South cooperation, that the organization of the poorer countries together can push back on the kind of unequal systems. But Mexico's not playing a huge role in that right now. And I think probably in until the coronavirus crisis subsides there, we shouldn't expect them to do so, you know, as they kind of wait to see what happens there. It's a sad story, but Mexico is not at the, still not at the vanguard of, of new changes in the international sphere at the moment. Many thanks to Christy Thornton for giving us such a clear introduction to Mexican history. If you'd like to know more, I'd recommend her recent interview for Jacobin, How Mexico Reshaped the Global Economy. 